Mark chapter 10, verse number 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you were here with us last Lord's Day, you know we looked at the same passage and we we pretty much ignored the center part of this passage last week. We ignored the whole exchange between Jesus and James and John and the ten. We spoke last week on the cross, and uh, this week we want to uh, bring that last part in as well, the discussion with James and John. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, we are so thankful for your word. I thank you, Lord, for uh, the Bible, but I also thank you for the Holy Spirit, which gives us understanding of your word. And I pray today that the Holy Spirit would uh, just uh, be in control of everything that takes place. Uh, We've felt his presence already today, and I pray, Father, now that he would just uh, give us wisdom. Fill me, Lord, with the Spirit that I might preach clearly and accurately and practically. Help me, Lord, to say what needs to be said and nothing else. Help me to say nothing I ought not. I pray, Lord, that all of us would have ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to think about how this applies to our lives and uh, to not only just listen to it, but uh, go out of this place determined we're going to live it. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alistair Begg is fond of reminding us that the best of men are men at best. And here we have another reminder of that sad fact. Another example of the humanity of the twelve disciples. Two of them here, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, made what appears, at least at first glance, to be a ridiculous, impertinent, and selfish request. We read their request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We read that request, and I don't know about you, but I'm immediately distressed when I read that. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this, captured that disappointment and the selfish nature of their request. He wrote this. He said, for all their faith, grace, and love to Jesus, they neither knew their own hearts nor the nature of the path before them. They still dreamed of temporal crowns and earthly rewards. They still did not know what sort of men they were. It's disappointing, isn't it? But our disappointment can't just stick with James and John. It has to extend to the rest of them as well. It has to extend to the ten because, uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, but their response wasn't exactly stellar either. Verse number 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. 
Now, we might look at that and we might think to ourselves, well, they're displeased that James and John would make such a request just as we're displeased when we think about it. How could they do such a thing? But as I studied this, I read a lot of commentaries as I study. As I studied this, not a single commentary took that position. All of them took the position that they were displeased because James and John beat them to it. They all wanted the same thing. And, of course, that's implied by the fact that Jesus then sat them all down and explained to them where they were wrong. I read things like this in Scripture. I can't help but feel a long, lugubrious sigh come welling up from within me when I hear things like that. What a picture, as if we needed yet another, of the frailty and the reality of life that is the church. I mean, think about this. We're all fallen and broken individuals. We're desperately in need of the cleansing and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life. These guys are a perfect picture of that. They were imperfect. And if that's true of Jesus' inner circle, of these 12 who were the closest to Jesus that anyone has ever been on the face of the earth or ever will be, these guys, if it's true of them, how true must it be in our churches still today? There was pride there. There was self-seeking There was striving for glory and prestige and position. There was disharmony. There was lack of unity. There was loss of focus on the goal. And there was way too much desire for what's in it for me. We are not to be surprised when we see those same seeds of malcontent surface in our churches or even in this church. It's just a reminder to us of that. Well, this request that we read here from James and John is actually mentioned in two of the Gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew and it's mentioned in Mark. Matthew adds something. Matthew adds that James and John seem to be spurred on by their mother, by mommy. Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 20. I think you can find that there. Walvert, in his explanation of this, says that she was Salome, probably a sister of Jesus' mother. And uh, I can share some verses about that if you want to see where he's coming up with that. But and he was a, she was a sister of Jesus' mother, of, of Mary. If so, then James and John were Jesus' first cousins. And so perhaps they thought that their family standing would give them some right to make such a claim. I don't know. But whatever their motivation, their question, and Jesus' response to it is what I want us to talk about today because it's very, very instructive. So let's look at some things here. Look at verse number 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? The first thing I noticed there is, as I mentioned earlier, the words that they used to approach him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That phrase jars me. I don't know if it jars you. Does it jar your senses when you hear that? We want you to do for us. Whatever we ask. Seems so impertinent, doesn't it? It seems kind of like out there in the the modern vernacular. But but if you look at all the different, you know, the major English translations, they all translate it exactly the same way. Teacher, we want you to do for us exactly what we ask. If you go to the New Living Translation, which is, is more of a paraphrase than a translation, it renders it, Teacher, we want you to do us a favor, which frankly I think waters it down a little bit. And if you go to the message, which is a Bible I never recommend because it has so many inaccuracies in it, it's not, a, it's not a translation at all. It's pure paraphrase. But in this case, it, uh, it renders it, uh, where is it at here? Teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. I think both of those water it down a little bit. 
Think what they're asking. We want you to give us whatever we ask. We want, you give. That's what they're asking. Very, very simple. And what was their request? They wanted glory. We want to sit on the right hand and the left hand in your glory, in your kingdom. One man said in ancient royal courts, the persons chosen to sit in these positions near the king were those who were the most powerful people in his kingdom. And so these two disciples asked for equivalent chief positions in Jesus' court. They wanted glory, and they wanted honor, and they wanted prestige. They were seeking the highest positions of honor in the coming kingdom. This was no small request. It was a pretty, pretty big thing. And it would be easy for us to be put off by the selfishness, apparent selfishness, I should say, of the disciples. One man said, in the light of our Lord's announcement of his death, we have to be embarrassed and ashamed to read of James and John asking for thrones. How could they, and their mother, be so callous and selfish? He goes on to point out that Peter had responded to the first announcement of Jesus' death by arguing with Jesus. You remember that story? It's not going to be, Lord. And then when the second announcement of Jesus' death came out, the disciples responded by arguing among themselves over who was going to be the greatest. And now we see this. These men seem blind to the meaning of the cross, at least from our initial perspective. But one of the first things that I think we have to notice here is that Jesus did not rebuke the request. Do you find that interesting? I do. He didn't rebuke it. There was nothing wrong in asking something big from God. We're given multiple verses of the Scripture that encourages us to do that. And so once we see somebody actually do it, we get a little bit upset with them. But we ought not to, because the Bible tells us to ask big things from God. My life verse is Jeremiah 33, 3, which says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. But that's not the only verse. Matthew 7, 7, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. John 14, 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's nothing wrong with asking big things of our big God. Our sister Sandy back there is a frequent attender of our Wednesday night prayer meetings which you all ought to be, by the way. Wednesday night prayer meetings are important. But one of the things that uh, she always manages to work in, and I always love it when she does, and she worked it in this past Wednesday as well, she mentions the fact that our God is, in her words, large and in charge. I love that. And it's true. We worship and serve a big God, and he's big and can handle big requests. And so we ought not to hesitate to bring big things before him. And Jesus did not rebuke their asking for something so seemingly out of line. And he did not rebuke their ambition. There was nothing wrong in wanting to be great in the kingdom of God. He didn't rebuke that. He explained that their understanding of greatness was not quite right. And he had to correct that a little bit. Uh, but uh, he did not, he didn't rebuke it. Paul told Timothy, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. 1 Timothy 3.1. So there's nothing wrong with desiring to serve God with distinction, to be great in his kingdom and in Christ's church. So he didn't rebuke their zeal, but he once again rather reiterated his formula for greatness and corrected their understanding of what that was. We've talked about that a lot, so we won't spend any time on that this morning. 
But then after he had heard their request, after he had listened to it, he gave them an answer. And I, I imagine this answer was not what they expected. Verse number 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And again, now notice in his answer, there's nothing there that's really rebuking their request. There's nothing there that's rebuking their desire. Not at all. He simply asked if they had considered what such a request would entail. He asked if they had considered the bigger picture. And he reminded them that greatness in serving him has a greatness of cost associated with it. There's an old hymn. I don't think we've ever sung it here. Uh, I don't even know if it's in our hymn book, but it has a line in it that says, It pays to serve Jesus. It pays every day. It pays every step of the way. But what Jesus was here reminding them, that uh, in addition to that wonderful truth, it also costs to serve Jesus. It costs. And Jesus asked, Have you guys considered that? Have you considered the bigger picture. He talked about the cup, and he talked about baptism. And both of those are metaphors there of his impending suffering, describing what he was going to have to go through. And just as an aside, we just had the Lord's Supper here, and we're talking about having a baptismal service not too long from now. It's interesting, isn't it? The two ordinances that he gave us are exactly the same two things he said there. I don't know if that's relevant, but I find it interesting. Somebody needs to study that out and tell me what you think. Uh, why he used those two particular things. But he asked James and John, he said, are you able and willing to go through that level of suffering? In other words, Jesus said uh, to share in his glory meant they must share in his suffering. One was prerequisite to the other. If he considered the bigger picture. As I think about this, I think of an, of an application that we need to make to ourselves. I think we need to stop for a minute and think about it. Because we often pray as these men pray, don't we? Lord, give me whatever I want. Isn't that how most of us pray? Those of you who do attend on Wednesday night know that's how most of us pray. Lord, give me whatever I want. And we are encouraged to pray, even like that. But how often do we consider the bigger picture? We pray for healing. Anytime we get sick or somebody is sick, we pray for healing. But what might God be trying to do through sickness? Even death. We pray for a particular job that we think we want. But what might God have in store for us in a completely different direction? You know, God, who knows everything. We pray for friends and family to avoid or not have to endure suffering. We hate to see family and friends going through difficulties and trials. But what precious jewel might God be shining and polishing with the rough cloth of that trial? What dross might he be removing from the silver of their lives? We think about the bigger picture. I think it's an application we need to consider. We pray. So we so often pray for what we think is good, forgetting God actually knows what is good and sees the whole. We serve a big and good God. He loves us more than we can even imagine, and he wants only our good. How much better it would be if we'd pray like Jesus prayed? Not my will, but thine be done. How much better to approach our God as the all-knowing, all-good, all-understanding, all-powerful, totally sovereign one, who knows best, always has our good in view. Rather than to approach him as these guys did, I think, like a genie in a bottle that you could just go to and make a wish. Well, Jesus had another thing to say here. Look at verse number 39. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. What he said there is, I can't give you that. I can't give you that. Asked if they were able to pay the cost that their request would entail, they responded with what can only be described as overconfidence. They said, sure, we're able, because they really weren't thinking it through. They said to him, verse number 39, we're able. And Jesus agreed with them. He said, yeah, you're right. You will indeed pay that price. You will indeed drink from that cup. You will indeed be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they would and did drink from that cup of suffering and endure that baptism. James was the very first apostle to be martyred, Acts chapter 12. And I oftentimes wonder if because he sought this position of prestige, is that why he was the first one to go through that? I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. John was the last apostle to die, but only after enduring many, many years of persecution and trial, ending in being uh, exiled on the Isle of Patmos for the latter part of his life. Jesus, in a wonderful reminder of his submission to the Father, said, I, I know you're going to go through those things, but I cannot give you that. Only the Father can decide that. And so as I think about this, I think there's another application. Maybe I'm a little bit off the wall here, but I don't think so. I think there's another application. You know, there are times when God cannot, will not, or does not seem to answer our prayers. And sometimes, just as in the case here, it's because there's a larger plan that God has. We don't see the bigger picture, but sometimes there's other reasons as well. God doesn't always answer our prayers. And we need to ask ourselves why sometimes. Sometimes the answer seems to be, I cannot give you that. The Bible is clear that there are some things that do hinder our prayers. Let me just share a few of them. And there are more than this, but let me just share a few. Psalm chapter 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That tells us that cherishing sin in our lives hinders our prayers. God will not hear. It doesn't, that does not mean that if we just simply have sin in our life that he won't hear our prayers, because then not, he wouldn't hear any of our prayers, because we all have sin in our life. We cannot not sin. But that's not what that says. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart. And that word regard uh, might be better translated cherish. Some translations, I think, do uh, translate it that way. Cherish. If I cherish sin. If it's, if it's something that we, we love, something that we put on a pedestal in our life, something that we're unwilling to give up, if that's there and we're unwilling to say no to it, well then, the Bible says, I can't answer your prayer. God says. So I ask you this morning, is there some, something like that in your life? Is there some sin that you know to be sin and yet love? Is there something unconfessed that you're unwilling to give up, something that you cherish? Because if that is the case, the Bible says that uh, the answer to your prayers will be, I cannot give you that. Jesus also said another reason, and it's over in Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. He said, whenever you stand praying, if you have something, anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive. I think that's teaching us that an unforgiving heart is also a hindrance. Somebody has done something wrong. Somebody has hurt you in some way, and you just can't get over it. 
hinders your prayer. James wrote, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures, James chapter 4 and verse number 3. And from that we learn we ought not to expect an answer to every little selfish prayer we throw up. As a matter of fact, some commentators said that's what the problem was here with James and John. I don't think it was, but some did. Maybe they're, they're wiser than me, so maybe, maybe they're right. Warren Wiersbe, for example, said this. He said in his estimation, Jesus did not answer their request because it was a selfish request, and God does not answer selfish prayers. How many times do we pray just as they did? Lord, I want you to give me whatever I want. How often do we approach the throne as if God is a genie in a bottle? that We can just go to him and ask silly things, and he will constantly answer our prayers. James said such silly prayers. We ought not to expect an answer. One other hindrance to prayer I'll mention, and there's others you can study on your own, but one other is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse number 7. It says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Hmm. There's a verse directed right at husbands. There's a verse directed right at us guys. But if we do not treat our wives right, our prayers will be hindered. Why are people laughing? We're going to have a conversation. Because I don't believe for a minute that that only applies to husbands. I believe that also applies to wives. Maybe not in that exact wording, but the fact is wives are also taught in Scripture that they are to be in loving submission to their husband. Uh, and so I think that there's probably some truth there that if they're not fulfilling their role, they would be there. But this is clear, clearly taught about husbands. It's undeniable that it's taught about husbands. So treat her right. Or you may find God's answer to prayer being, I can't give you that. Jesus could not grant their request. He did not grant their request. But he did go on to teach them the way to greatness in his kingdom, and he wrapped it all up by saying that he was the example. I am the example. The Son of Man is the example. We don't have time this morning, but I would encourage you to study verse 45. You ought to circle verse 45. Verse 45 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We mentioned that it's the theme verse of the book of Mark. But it's also one of the best verses in the Bible to understand the substitutionary atonement of of, of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That word ransom, great word. That word ransom talks about uh, buying back a slave, someone who is a slave, buying them back. Or someone who is being held hostage, paying the price, the ransom, to buy them back. That's what Jesus did for you and me. But I think one of the greatest words in that whole thing is that little word for. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. Doesn't that seem like just an insignificant little word? But it is in the Greek a word that actually means on behalf of. In place of another. And so that passage is telling us very plainly there about the substitutionary atonement that took place on the cross. Jesus bought us back. He died on the cross in our place for us. But in the context of the passage that we're looking at here today, I, we could talk about that all day, but, but I want us to notice that Jesus was simply saying in response to their hope for greatness, I'm your example of that. You want to be great. Be like me. So James and John made this request of Jesus. It's not a wrong request. 
but it was a case where they had not considered the bigger picture. And Jesus decided to decline their request. Let us, let's learn some things from this. Let's learn to never hesitate to bring our requests, no matter how big they might be, to the Savior. Let us always be open to the bigger things God has in mind. Let us seek an awareness of his sovereign working behind the scenes. What is he doing that's bigger than this little thing we're thinking about right now? And let us especially be servants, always and ever putting the needs of others ahead of our own. Personal needs, wants, others first, and always looking to the example of the Savior.